This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Are you ready for some high adventure? Coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes, somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio presents Adventures of the Federated Tech. Created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and dramatized from stories by Dashiell Hammett. This time, a man comes face to face with his past, and his wife gets blamed for the mess he leaves behind. Tonight's story, Zigzags of Treachery, Part 1, adapted for audio by Pete Lutz. All I know about Dr. Eastep's death, Mr. Richmond, is the stuff I've read in the papers. Nah, the newspapers aren't always either thorough or accurate. I'll give you the salient points as I know them, though I suppose you'll want to go over the ground yourself and get your information firsthand. All right. Dr. Umber Eastep came to San Francisco in 1898 or 99, a young man of 25, just through with medical school. He opened an office here and in time became a rather excellent surgeon. He married two or three years after he came here. There were no children. He and his wife seemed to have been a bit happier than the average. Of his life before coming to San Francisco, nothing is known. He told his wife, whose name is Greta, briefly that he had been born and raised in West Virginia, but that his home life had been so unpleasant that he was trying to forget it, didn't like to talk or even think about it. Bear that in mind. Two weeks ago, on the third of the month, in the afternoon, a woman came to his office. He maintained his practice out of his home on Pine Street. Dr. Eastup's nurse, one Lucy Coe, showed the woman into his office and then went back to my own desk in the reception room. I didn't hear anything Dr. Eastup said to the woman, but through the closed door, I could hear the woman's voice now and then. There was anguish, I guess you could say, in her voice, and she seemed to be pleading with the doctor about something. No, most of the words were lost upon me, but I did hear one thing definitely. She cried, Please... Please, don't turn me away. I suppose they were in there together about 15 minutes, and then the lady left. She was sobbing into a handkerchief. The doctor said nothing to me afterward about the visitor. The next evening, while I was putting on my hat and coat before going home, Dr. Eastep came out of his office, looking very pale, as white as my uniform. He had his hat and coat on, too, and carried a stamp envelope in his hand. He walked very slowly, carefully to keep from staggering. 
I asked him if he was ill. Oh, it's nothing. I'll be all right in a very few minutes. With that, he left the office. I left right behind him and saw him drop the envelope into the mailbox on the corner. Then he returned to the house. The girl told you that Dr. Estep didn't talk about the woman's visit with her. Do you know if he told his wife about it? He didn't. Mrs. Estep didn't learn about the visit until after his death. All right. Go on. Mrs. Estep, coming downstairs, probably ten minutes later, heard the sound of a gunshot from her husband's office. She rushed in and saw her husband by his desk, swaying, with a hole in his right temple and a smoking revolver in his hand. Just as she reached him and put her arms around him, he fell across the desk, dead. Anybody else, servants, for instance, able to say that Greta Estep didn't go into the office until after the shot? No, no, damn it. That's where the rub comes in. Ah. The next day's papers had accounts of Dr. Estep's death. And late that morning, the woman who had called upon him the day before his death came to the house. I'm Dr. Estep's first wife. Uh, that is to say, his legal wife. Him and me was married in Philadelphia in 1896. This here's a certified copy of our marriage record. Estep deserted me in Philly after only two years of marriage. There seems to be no reason for doubting it as much as I'd like to. The woman has sufficient proof of her identity that she really is the Edna Fife who married him. And my agents in the East have found positive proof that Estep was married and had practiced for two years in Philadelphia. And here is another point. Remember I told you that Estep told his second wife that he was born in West Virginia? The town, he said, was Parkersburg. Well, I had inquiries made there, but found nothing to show that he had ever lived there, and found ample to show that he had never lived at the address he had given his second wife. Sounds to me like all that talk of an unhappy childhood was just a scheme to dodge embarrassing questions. Yes, that's what I thought, too. Did you do anything toward finding out whether the doctor and his first wife had ever been divorced? I'm looking into that now, but I hardly expect to learn that they had. But let me get on with my story. This woman, the first Mrs. Estep, said that she had just recently learned her husband's whereabouts and had come to see him in an attempt to effect a reconciliation. I come from back east to see if him and me couldn't patch things up between us. When I went to see him... The afternoon before his death, he asked me to give him a little time to make up his mind what he ought to do. He promised to give me his decision in two days. My personal opinion, after talking to the woman several times, is that she had learned that he'd accumulated some money and that her interest was more in getting the money than in getting him. But that, of course, is neither here nor there. At first, the authorities accepted the natural explanation of the doctor's death, suicide. But after the first wife's appearance, the second wife, my client, was arrested and charged with murder. Yeah, the papers say the cops think now that after the first wife's visit, Dr. Estep told his second wife the whole story. And she, thinking that she'd been deceived all these years, worked herself up into a rage, stormed into his office after the nurse left for the day, and shot him with a revolver he always kept in his desk. Yes, 
I don't know, of course, just what evidence the prosecution has. But from the newspapers, I gather that the case against her will be built upon her fingerprints on the revolver, an upset inkwell on his desk, splashes of ink on her clothes, and an inky print of her hand on a torn newspaper on his desk. I can see things from the defense's point of view, or rather yours. It would have been perfectly natural for the lady to take the revolver out of her husband's hand. That accounts for her print on it. And if he fell onto the desk just as he put her arms around him, it stands to reason that his dead weight would drag her with him. That would account for the spilled inkwell and the splashes of ink on her dress and probably the torn newspaper. But the prosecution will try to persuade the jury that all those things happened before the shooting, that they are proof of a struggle. Not so bad. Or pretty damned bad, depending on how you look at it. There have been a handful of murder trials recently where the accused, a woman who supposedly killed a man who betrayed or deceived her, was set free. The newspapers, the public, and the clergy are all clamoring for an example to be made. And as if this wasn't bad enough, the prosecuting attorney has lost his last two big cases. And with election day not far off, he'll be out for blood. So... So, I don't know what you think. You're a detective. You're more or less skeptical of innocence in general. But I know... Greta Eastup didn't kill her husband. Don't you have to say that about your clients? No. I was Dr. Eastup's attorney and his friend, and if I thought the woman guilty, I'd do everything in my power to help convict her. But I know this as well as I know anything. She didn't and couldn't have killed him. <sighs> but I know, too, that if I go into court with no evidence beyond what I now have, she'll be convicted. I'm putting it up to you. Can you save her? Our best mark is the letter he mailed just before he died. It's good betting that when a man writes and mails a letter and then shoots himself, that the letter isn't altogether unconnected with the suicide. Did you ask the first wife about this letter? I did, and she denies having received one. That's not right. If the doctor had been driven to suicide by her appearance, then according to all the rules there are, the letter should have been addressed to her. He might have written one to his second wife, but he would hardly have mailed it. Would she have any reason for lying about it? Yes, I think she would. His will leaves everything to the second wife. The first wife, being the only legal spouse, will have no difficulty in breaking that will, of course. But if it's shown that the second wife had no knowledge of the first one's existence, that she really believed herself to be Dr. Eastup's legal wife, then I think that she'll receive at least a portion of the estate. But if she should be found guilty of murdering Dr. Eastup, then no consideration will be shown her and the first wife will get every penny. Did he leave enough to make half of it, say, worth sending an innocent person to the gallows for? He left about half a million, roughly. $250,000 is not a mean inducement. <whistles> Attorney Vance Richmond and I spoke for a few more minutes about the case. I found out that the first Mrs. Estep was staying at the Montgomery Hotel, but she had been living in Louisville, Kentucky. She had retained the very reputable firm of Somerset, Somerset, and Quill to represent her. 
Richmond was certain that if Edna Estep was being dishonest about the missing letter, then her lawyers knew nothing about it. I asked if I could speak to the second Mrs. Estep, and I was told that her arrest and imprisonment had been too much for her, that she was on the verge of an emotional collapse. Richmond's voice was losing its usual calmness, so I picked up my hat, said something about starting to work at once, and went out. I don't like eloquence. If it isn't effective enough to pierce your hide, it's tiresome. And if it is effective enough, then it muddles your thoughts. I spent the next couple hours questioning the Estep servants to no great advantage. None of them had been near the front of the house at the time of the shooting, and none had seen Greta Estep immediately prior to her husband's death. With the Estep end of the job cleaned up, I set out for the Montgomery Hotel, convinced that my only hope for success, barring miracles, which usually don't happen, lay in finding the letter that I believed the late doctor had written to his first wife. My drag with the Montgomery Hotel management was pretty strong. I'd recently been on hand to solve a triple homicide there, so it was strong enough to get me anything I wanted that wasn't too far outside the law. I hunted up Mr. Stacy, one of the assistant managers. Hello. Nice to see you again. Likewise. I'd like to find out about this Mrs. Edna Estep who's registered here. What do you know about her? Nothing myself. But if you'll wait a few minutes, I'll see what I can learn. Stacy was gone about ten minutes. No one seems to know much about her. I questioned the telephone girls, bellboys, maids, clerks, and the house detective, but none of them could tell me much. Well, just lay out what they told you. She registered from Louisville on the second of the month. She's never stopped here before, and she seems unfamiliar with the city. Ask quite a few questions about how to get around. The mail clerks don't remember handling any mail for her, nor do the girls on the switchboard have any record of phone calls for her. What kind of hours does she keep? Regular. She usually goes out at 10 or later in the morning and gets in before midnight. She doesn't seem to have any callers or friends. Will you have her mail watched? Let me know what postmarks and return addresses are on any letters she gets? Certainly. And will you have the girls on the switchboard put their ears up against any talking she does over the wire? Yes. Is she in her room now? No. Uh, she went out a little while ago. I'd like to go up and take a look at her stuff. Um, <clears throat> um is it... Um, important as all that? I want to give you all the assistance I can, but... It's this important, that another woman's life depends on what I can learn about this one. All right. I'll tell the clerks to let us know if she comes in before we're through. And we'll go right up. The woman's room held two valises and a trunk, all unlocked and containing not the least thing of importance. No letters, nothing. So little, in fact, that I was more than half convinced that she had expected her things to be searched. Sorry, what are you going to do now? If you don't mind, I'll plant myself in the lobby, within sight of the key rack, and wait for a view of the lady when she comes in. She came in at 11.15 that night, a large woman of 45 or 50, well-dressed and carrying herself with an air of assurance. Her face was hard around the mouth and chin, but not enough to be ugly. A capable-looking woman, a woman who would get what she went after.
Eight o'clock was striking as I entered the Montgomery Hotel lobby the next morning and picked out a comfortable chair within eye range of the elevators. At 10.30, Edna Estep left the hotel with me in her wake. Her denial that a letter from her husband, written immediately before her death, had come to her didn't fit in with the possibilities as I saw them. And a good motto for the detective business is, when in doubt, shadow him. After eating breakfast at a restaurant on O'Farrell Street, she turned toward the shopping district, and for a long time, though I suppose it was a lot shorter than it seemed to me, she led me through the most densely packed portions of the most crowded department store she could find. She didn't buy anything, but she did a lot of thorough looking, with me muddling along behind her, trying to look like a little fat guy on an errand for his wife. While stout women bumped me and thin ones prodded me, and all sorts got in my way and walked on my feet. Mm. There are four rules for shadowing. One, keep behind your subject as much as possible. Two, never try to hide from him. Three, act in a natural manner no matter what happens. And four, never meet his eye. Obey these rules and accept in unusual circumstances, shadowing is the easiest thing that a sleuth has to do. So, after all this legwork, we eventually ended up in two taxicabs, mine following hers. She got out on Laguna Street and waited till her cab was out of sight, then walked down the block to a building occupied by four flats, each with its own separate door. And the button she pressed was for the right-hand, second-story flat. I kept my eye on the vestibule until 5.35 p.m. when she came out, caught a streetcar to the Montgomery, and went up to her room. Hi, Terry, it's me. Give me the old man, okay? Thanks. Good evening. I assume you're still on the East Step suicide case? Yes, sir. I won't encumber you with a lot of questions. I'll wait for the report. Thank you. Uh, what can I do for you, then? Can you assign a man to learn the who and what of the occupant or occupants of a Laguna Street flat? Yes. Young Bob Teal is idle currently. I'll detail him to the job. Thank you, sir. Here's the address. Dick, I don't think you'll have to work very hard on it. This E-Step dame is like clockwork. Last night, she ate dinner at the Montgomery and went to a show afterwards. She was back in her room by 11. I think yesterday she might have been sensing that someone was following her, but last night she displayed no interest in possible shadowers. Where can I get hold of you if anything happens? Call the agency. They'll reach me. I'm heading back there now to see what Bob Teal has to tell me about that flat on Laguna Street. Righto. A guy named Jacob Ledwich lives there. He's a crook of some sort, but I don't know just what. He and Wopo Healy are friendly, so he must be a crook. Porky Grout says he's an ex-Bunko man who is in with a gambling ring now. But Porky would tell you a bishop was a safe cracker if he thought it'd mean five bucks in his pocket. Okay, what did you find out about his routine? Well, 
This Ledwich goes out mostly at night, and he seems to be pretty prosperous. Probably a high-class worker of some sort. He's got a Buick. I wrote down the license number that he keeps in a garage around the corner from his flat. But he doesn't seem to use the car much. What sort of looking fellow is he? A big guy, six feet or better. And he'll weigh a couple hundred easy. He's got a funny mug on him. It's broad and heavy around the cheeks and jaw, but his mouth is a little one that looks like it was made for a smaller man. He's no youngster. Middle-aged. Suppose you tail him for a day or two, Bob, and see what he's up to. Try to get a room or apartment in the neighborhood, a place that you can cover his front door from. Can do. Jacob Ledwich. Yes, he was a friend, or at least an acquaintance, of Dr. Eastup's. I met him once, a large man with a peculiarly inadequate mouth. I dropped in to see the doctor one day, and Ledwich was in his office. The doctor introduced us. What do you know about him? Nothing. Don't you know whether he was intimate with the doctor or just a casual acquaintance? No. For all I know, he might have been a friend, a patient, or almost anything. I simply gave the doctor some information he'd asked for and left. Why? Dr. Estep's first wife, after going to a lot of trouble to see that she wasn't followed, connected with Ledwich yesterday afternoon. And from what we can learn, he seems to be a crook of some sort. What would that indicate? I'm not sure what it means, but I can do a lot of guessing. Ledwich knew both the doctor and the doctor's first wife, so it's not a bad bet that she knew where her husband was all the time. If she did, then it's another good bet that she was getting money from him right along. Can you check up his accounts and see whether he was passing out any money that can't be otherwise accounted for? Mm, I'm sorry. No, his accounts are in rather bad shape, carelessly kept. He must have had more than a little difficulty with his income tax statements. I see. To get back to my guesses, if she knew where he was all the time and was getting money from him, then why did this first wife finally come to see him? Perhaps because... Ah, I think I can help you there. A fortunate investment in lumber nearly doubled Dr. Estep's wealth two or three months ago. That's it then. She learned of it through Ledwich. She demanded a rather large share of it, more than the doctor was willing to give. When he refused, she came to see him in person to demand the money under threat, we'll say, of instant exposure. Estep would figure she was serious, right? But either he couldn't raise the money she demanded or he was tired of leaving a double life. Anyway, he thought it over and decided to commit suicide. This is all a guess, mind you, or a series of guesses, but it sounds reasonable to me. To me, too. What are you going to do now? Along with having them both shadowed, I'm having the woman looked up in Louisville. We run the risk, however, of digging up a bunch of things on them and still being as far as ever from finding the letter Dr. Estep wrote before he died. There's every possibility that she destroyed it. That'd be her wisest play. But if I can get enough on her, maybe I can squeeze her into admitting that the letter was written and that it had said something about suicide. And that'll be enough to spring your client. How is she today? Any better? She went completely to pieces last night and was removed to the hospital where she should have been taken in the first place. To tell you the truth, if she isn't liberated soon, she won't need our help. This whole experience is killing her. You've got to get her out and quickly. Bob. 
Bob Teal had phoned in the address of the furnished apartment he'd rented by the time I returned to the office, so I hopped on a streetcar to Laguna Street, but I didn't get that far. Walking down Laguna Street after leaving the car, I spied Bob coming toward me. And between Bob and me, also coming toward me, was a big man who could be none other than Jacob Ledwich. A big man with a big red face around a tiny mouth. I walked on down the street, passing both Ledwich and Bob, without paying any apparent attention to either. At the next corner, I stopped to roll the cigarette and steal a look at the other two. I won't bore you with the minute details. Suffice to say that Teal shadowed Ledwich, and I shadowed both of them, and then a fourth party showed up, who also seemed to be shadowing the big man. We all ended up on a Sutter Street cable car, with Bob at the front, Ledwich in the middle, and the amateur sleuth, there was no doubting his amateur status, standing beside me on the rear platform. I sized this fellow up while he strained his neck, peeping at Ledwich from around the shoulder of a large man in overalls. He was small, scrawny, and frail, with a constantly twitching nose. His clothes were old and shabby, and he himself was somewhere in his 50s. I decided after a few minutes that he hadn't tumbled to Bob Teal's part in the game. So when a seat next to Bob was vacated presently, I went into the car and sat down, my back to the little man. Drop off after a couple of blocks, Bob, and go back to the apartment. Don't shadow Ledwich anymore until I tell you. Just watch his place. There's a bird following him, and I want to see what he's up to. Bob grunted that he understood, and after a few minutes, left the car. At Stockton Street, Ledwich got off, the man with the twitching nose behind him and me in the rear. In this formation, we paraded around town all afternoon. The little man had a rather strenuous time of it, laboring mightily to keep out of Ledwich's sight and only succeeding because we were downtown where you can get away with almost any sort of shadowing. He certainly made a lot of work for himself, dodging here and there. After a while, Ledwich shook him. He came out of a cigar store with another man and they got into an automobile that was standing beside the curb. My man was left standing on the edge of the sidewalk, twitching his nose in chagrin. There was a taxi stand just around the corner, but he either didn't know it or didn't have enough money to pay the fare. He eventually led me to a cheap hotel on Kearney Street, took his key from a row of hooks, and headed down the darkened corridor to his room. With nobody at the desk, I was able to scan the register. The room that corresponded to the key he'd taken was assigned to a John Boyd, St. Louis, Missouri, who had arrived the day before. The hotel wasn't the sort where it's safe to make inquiries, so I went out to the street again and came to rest on the least conspicuous nearby corner. Midnight came and no John Boyd, so I called it a day and went home. Yeah. What do you have for me, Dick? Your Mrs. Estep did nothing of any importance all day. No mail, no phone calls. See, I told you you wouldn't have to work hard. Yeah. Okay, leave off shadowing her until I solve the problem of John Boyd. Who's that? He's a fly in the ointment. He knows our man Ledwich, and he might know Edna Estep, too. Boyd might turn his attention to her, and I don't want him to discover that she's being shadowed. Mm-hmm. My guess on this Boyd character is that he and Mrs. Estep are working together. Maybe she has him watching Ledwich for her so the big man can't double-cross her. 
That's only a guess, though, and I don't gamble too much on my guesses. So what do you want me to do? So just do like Bob Teal's doing with Ledwich. <sighs> and watch your comings and goings from Montgomery. I'm off to bed. <sighs> Get lost, pal. No panhandlers. Bob, it's me. Oh, hello. I didn't recognize you in that getup. You certainly look down on your luck. What's it all about? Our amateur sleuth Boyd is dressed nearly as shambly as this. I've been shadowing him already this morning, and I wanted to blend in down there in his neighborhood. Come on in. Where is he now? Down in the corner watching the door to Ledwich's flat. He'll be there all day. Ledwich is not an early riser. Have a seat by the window. I've got coffee, smokes, and cods. Night had just definitely settled when Ledwich came out and started walking up toward the streetcar line. I slid out into the street, and our parade was underway again, Ledwich leading, Boyd following him, and me following Boyd. Half a block of this, and I got an idea. Ledwich was about a block ahead of me, Boyd half that distance. Speeding up, I passed Boyd and caught up with Ledwich. Then, without turning my head, I said, Jake, there's a guy following you. Who the hell are you? Don't get funny. It ain't my funeral. But I was coming up the street when you came out and I seen this guy duck behind a pole until you was passed and then follow you up. You sure? Sure. All you got to do to prove it is turn the next corner and wait. Want any help? Nah. I got a rod. Want to borrow it? Nah. Don't mind if I stick around to see the fun, do you? There wasn't time to answer that question. Boyd had quickened his steps, and now he came hurrying around the corner, his nose twitching like a tracking dog's. Ledwich stepped into the middle of the sidewalk to block the little man's way. Ooh, ooh, hey, let go, let go, let go, come on, ow, ow, let me go, come on. What are you snooping around me for, you rat? Didn't I tell you to keep away from me from Frisco? Aw, oh, Jake, I didn't mean no harm. I just thought that we were... Come on, stop, stop, stop. Cut it out. Come on, let me go. Let me go, let me go. Shut your trap. Huh. This is a friend of mine. So it seems. Say, how did you know my name? A famous man like you? <laughs> Cut to comedy. How'd you know my name? None of your damn business. Well... I owe you something for this trip. Oh, stop, stop, stop. Oh, come on, let me go, let me go. Come on, stop. How you fixed? I've been dirtier. Dirty is Pacific Coast slang for prosperous. Ledwich now looked from me to Boyd and back in a speculative way. No Wapo Healy's joint? The circle? Sure. If you'll meet me there tomorrow night, I can maybe put a piece of change your way. Nothing stirring. I ain't circulating that prominent these days. A fat chance I'd have of meeting him there. Of course, what Ledwich didn't know was that Wapo Healy and half his customers knew me for a detective. So there was nothing to do but try to put over the impression that I was a crook who had reasons to avoid the more notorious hangouts for a while. Ledwich thought about it a minute, then gave me his Laguna Street address. Hey, drop in this time tomorrow, and maybe I'll have a proposition to make you. If you got the guts. I'll think it over. Hey, just a minute. What's your name? Wisher. Shine if you want a front one. Shine Wisher? I don't remember hearing it before. 
You needn't yell it so that everybody in the Berg will remember hearing it. And with that, I left him, not at all dissatisfied with myself. I would have been surprised if Ledwich had recognized the name Shine Wisher, since I'd made it up only about 15 minutes before. By tipping him off to Boyd, I'd put him under obligations to me and had led him to accept me, at least tentatively, as a fellow crook. And by making no apparent effort to gain his good graces, I'd strengthened my hand that much more. That you? Yeah. Ledwich come back? Yeah, with that little guy of yours. They went in about half an hour ago. Good. Haven't seen a woman go in. No. Huh. I was expecting Edna Eastep to show up tonight, but I guess not. Say I've got a meet set up with Ledwich tomorrow. He thinks I'm a crook like him. Your shabby dud's paid off then, eh? Clothes maketh the man. There's a chance now that his proposition has nothing to do with the Eastep affair, but then again it might. But whether it does or not, I've at least wedged my way a little into Ledwich's business. Nice work. You heading home now? No, I'll wait around with you, see if Ledwich and Boyd make any more moves tonight. All right. It's my deal. At 1 a.m., Ledwich came out alone. I'm going to tail him, just for luck. Ledwich vanished around a corner, and then Bob passed out of sight behind him. Five minutes later, though, Bob was with me again. He's getting his machine out of the garage. I'll call the agency and have a fast car set over. Yeah, it's me. Send a car pronto to the Laguna Street location. Make it sudden. Here he is. He's pulling up in front of his house. What's he doing? He's going in. How long until that car gets here? few minutes, they told me. Look, Ledwich left his door open. He's coming out, and he's not alone. Is that Boyd with him? It's too dark to make out faces. It ought to be. Is he drunk? Ledwich is holding him up like he is. He's either drunk, sick, or drugged. They're getting into the car. We're going to lose them. Damn it, there they go. The red taillights of Ledwich's touring car laughed back at us for a few blocks, then disappeared. The automobile I'd ordered arrived 20 minutes later, so we sent it back unused. At a little after three that morning, Ledwich, alone and afoot, returned from the direction of his garage. He had been gone exactly two hours. You have been listening to Zigzags of Treachery, Part 1, the Season 2 premiere of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech. Noah Diamond as Attorney Vance Richmond. Frank Guglielmelli as Mr. Stacy. Rachel Pulliam as Lucy Coe. Jeff Moon as Dr. Estep. Jerry Aleph as Edna Estep. Mark Kalita as Dick Foley. Jordan Brewster as Bob Teal. Paul Arbisi as Ledwich. John Bell as Boyd, and Joe Stofko as The Old Man. The theme and certain incidental music was composed and performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Zigzags of Treachery was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the March 1st, 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonia Sound Design. This program was adapted by and produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. 
This is Darren Rockold speaking. Please join us next time when the Federated Tech says... The life of an innocent woman hangs in the balance and only a letter can save her if we find it in time. Be with us for our next episode, part two of Zigzags of Treachery, coming soon from 63 Audio. Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. (sighs) Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Rocksprocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. And now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man! (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere! Or at digitalvaudeville.com! That is D-I-G-I-T-A-L-V-A-U-D-E-V-I-L-L-E dot com! <laughs>